You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, every once in a while, the sound guys will forget to hit the record button, or for some reason, technology fails us. And uh, that's what happened with this fourth part of the dealing with the security of the sheep. And so uh, today, I'm going to sit down and work through the rest of this passage. It is such a significant passage as pertains to the issue of whether or not a true believer in Jesus Christ can lose their salvation. So we'll jump right in where we got uh, done with part three. Um, we've taken the last three times together in John looking at this passage where the security of the sheep are described in these eight phrases, eight truths in verses 27 to 29. And uh, we've taken a little bit of time to take uh, you know two of these phrases per turn. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, that's the first one, and I know them, that's the second one, and they follow me, that's number three. Number four, and I give eternal life to them. Number five, they will never perish. Number six, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And now today we're looking at the last two of these eight phrases. In verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the seventh truth, the seventh phrase there is that his sheep, that is Jesus' sheep, are given to him by the Father. And the second, nobody can snatch them from the Father. Now, any one of those eight statements is sufficient to secure the salvation of Christ's sheep. And from any one of those eight statements, we could argue that those who are truly saved can never, under any circumstances, and by no turn of events and by no act of their will, can they ever be lost. But here we have in all eight of these in a sort of rapid-fire bullet bullets uh, succession. It, it is impossible that Christ's sheep should be failed should fail to be called to him and to perish, because he knows who are his, and he is able to fully save all those who are his, and he guarantees that his sheep will follow him, he guarantees that they will not follow another, that they will never perish, he gives eternal life to his sheep, and a life that will never come to an end, and consequently, they never will and can never perish, and not only that, but no force, and no circumstance, and no sin, and no situation, no devil or demon, no world or human, shall be able to snatch his sheep from his hand. So number seven, the seventh of these eight phrases, his sheep are given to him by the father. By the father. Now in these last two statements, the emphasis is on the father and the father's role in securing the sheep. His sheep are given to him by the father, who is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from the father's hand. Now we are given to consider now the role of the father and the father's purpose in salvation of the sheep, and this has to be brought under our consideration because of what we read in verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. There is an essential oneness between the Father, who gave the sheep to the Son, and the Son to whom these sheep were given. And the fact that the Father gave to his Son a people to save is a huge factor, a huge consideration in the security of the sheep. Because not only is the Son interested in the salvation of these people and in their security, but the Father has an interest as well. I mean, after all, the sheep whom Jesus speaks of were given to him by the Father. So now what is this giving? And we want to answer the question, what is this giving? Who are the ones who are given? Who is doing the giving? And to what end? What is the purpose of this giving? Why are these particular sheep 
given to the Son, and what is the reason that they were given to the Son? Well, we can get a few clues right from the context here in this chapter. You can see from verse uh, 26, uh, first of all, that some are not given to the Son. Verse 26, Jesus said to the Pharisees, these are the unbelieving, hostile religious leaders who opposed him and who later would pick up stones to stone him. Jesus said, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. These particular unbelieving Pharisees were not his sheep. So the extent of this giving, it, it is it, it is to some that are given to the Father, and it is not all that are given to the by the Father to the Son. Sorry, should given to the Son. It's not all that are given to the Son, but it is some who are given to the Son, because the Pharisees were not. And this is hard for us sometimes to understand or accept, but the truth is that not everybody enjoys the same grace from God, because grace is unmerited favor, and God dispenses grace to whom he on the terms that he wills, when he wills, and how he wills, because it's grace. We don't deserve grace. We receive grace from God, and God does not give the same grace to all people. God is God is, discre- is discretionary with his grace. God is good and kind in giving his grace, but he never just spreads out a peanut butter grace across to all people that, that everybody gets to partake in. No, there are some who are given this grace of being given to the Son, and there are others to whom this grace of being given to the Son for their salvation and security, there are others to whom that grace is not given. Second, we can know from this passage that this gift of a people by the Father to the Son occurred in the past. Jesus says in verse 29 that they were given. That's past tense. He speaks in verse 16 of other sheep which he has which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So those are people who were given to him in the past, as Jesus is speaking here in chapter 10. The giving was past to chapter 10, but the gathering them in is yet future. So it is not the gathering them in that makes them his sheep. There are those who are his sheep because they were given to him. And because they were given to him, he will gather them in. So Jesus is not picking up sheep along the way. Sheep are not becoming his in time as they believe. They believe in time because they are his. Their belief is a result of their belonging to him. It is not their belonging to him which brings about their... Sorry, their their belief is the result of already belonging to him. They don't belong to him because they have believed. Now, you're starting to think, well, this sounds a lot like the doctrine of election, and you're right, because election is certainly tied to this action. And I would hesitate to say that the act of the Father choosing a people and the act of the Father giving that people to his Son are the same identical act, but they are most certainly, necessarily, and intimately connected, because it is the electing grace of the Father which chose a people in eternity past for salvation, and that must necessarily precede, at least logically, the same group of people being given to the Son. Now, there are two other places, even in John, where Jesus speaks extensively about this same thing. In John 6, verses 39 and 40, listen, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, and everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So these these people who are coming are not coming because uh, because they are able in and of themselves. They don't have that ability, but they come to the Son because the Father draws them to the Son. And these ones whom the Father draws to the Son are the ones whom the Father has given to the Son. 
And we see the same thing described in John chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in John 17, Jesus says in verse 2, that the Father had given him, that is the Son of glory and authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. In verse 6, Jesus said, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. In verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they're yours. In verse 14, he speaks of those who are not of the world, that is, the ones that the Father gave to the Son. Verse 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Those are all the places where Jesus describes this blessed gift of the Father to him in giving a people to him. So this is the same group of people, chosen by the Father according to the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1. It's not based on anything in them. This group of people was then given to the Son, that the Son may give all of them eternal life. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us, in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Second Thessalonians two thirteen and 14, But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, uh, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So this electing grace was not shown to all men, but some. Those whom the Father chose, he then gave to his Son. Those are his sheep. They are the ones who believe, who behold the Son. They receive eternal life, and they never perish. His sheep and the elect, they are one in the same. Now what is the purpose of the Father giving these to the Son? It was so that the Son would bring them to salvation, and that he would then secure them for his eternal glory, and raise them up in resurrection on the last day. That was John six thirty nine through 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John seventeen two. Jesus said, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you given him... He may give eternal life. I would ask you this. How many of those whom the Father has given to the Son will the Son give eternal life to? John 17.2 answers it. All. All. He will give eternal life. That is life that never ends and can never be taken away and will never be extinguished. He will give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him. Now it is the will of the Father that the Son should save and secure those whom the Father gave to him. This was the purpose and the aim of God's electing grace was not to exclude worthy people from heaven, but to secure the salvation of a multitude of unworthy people for heaven. And without that amazing act of grace, all of humanity would have perished, because all of humanity deserved the wrath of God for their sin. So the act of the Father in giving a people to his Son should be understood as something that guarantees the salvation of those people. And if one of those people should perish, even one, that it would mean that the electing purposes of God from all of eternity past, and the intention of the triune God, would be brought to nothing and would be frustrated. 
it would mean that God's electing grace was overthrown and that some act or will of a demon or of a man made the will of God void. It would mean that God was desperately trying, trying to save people, but ultimately he could not. And his desire that for those whom he chose would be frustrated. And ultimately it would mean that God is not mighty to save. Now you think of for a moment about how this relates to the security of the sheep. Consider the gravity and the significance of this gift. And the language that Jesus uses gives us, gives us a glimpse into the workings and the relationship of the members of the eternal trinity. The Father loves the Son, and as an act of that unimaginable and infinite love, the Father decided to give to his Son a bride, a people, a chosen people. So that the Father might demonstrate his grace and his kindness and his infinite love, he chose a people and gave them to his Son. And the Father committed to the Son the salvation of these people for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These sheep were given to the Son as an expression of the Father's love. And everything that the Father does for his Son or toward the Son is an expression of that love. So this makes the gift of that people of an unimaginable significance. And the significance is not due to the fact that you and I are so spanky, that you and I are so great, but because the Father loved us and gave us to his Son. So we are his sheep, chosen by grace and by the love of the Father. That makes us precious in his sight, beloved by God. So how does that contribute to our understanding of the security of the sheep? Well, what will the Son do with that gift? Will he despise it? No, he loves the Father with a perfect and infinite love. Will he not save all of them? Will he not secure all of them? Will the Son think so little of the Father's gift of love that he will neglect to secure them for his eternal glory? No. Will he allow an untold multitude of sheep given to him by the Father to perish in flames? May it never be. Perish the thought. Will the Son ever say, well, Father, I did my best, but lo, it was not good enough. I mean, I lost a lot of those whom you gave to me. How many? Well, millions of hell, yes. I failed to secure them. I failed to save them. But hey, I mean, there are a lot of really stubborn sinners in that bunch. There were some real scoundrels. Uh, some of them, man, as much as I wanted to keep them, they just insisted on jumping out of my hand, and there was nothing I could do. Sorry, but many of those whom you committed to my care have been lost and have perished. And I know you sent me down there to save them, but they were unwilling. So, Father, what am I supposed to do? Now, if you believe that a Christian can lose their salvation, that is that is exactly what you think has to happen. Will the Son fail to cherish and preserve this gift of infinite love which was given to him by the Father? No. The fact that we are chosen by the Father and then given to the Son further guarantees our security. How is it possible that such a gift should be squandered or lost by the omnipotent Son? And this indicates that we not only belong to the Son, but to the Father as well. Because we were and are the Father's people, and we were, are, also the Son's people. We are the sheep of the Son, the Good Shepherd, but likewise, we belong to the Father. And Jesus described this in John 17, 6-10, where he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. Or the words which you gave me, I gave to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Now listen, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Because Jesus and the Father are one, chapter 10, verse 30, they are one in nature and substance, and to belong to Christ is to belong to the Father. And all that is the Father's is given to the Son. And all that belongs to the Son is the Father's as well. 
Now that's an evidence of the unity that exists between the Father and the Son, this complete oneness. But the Father would never give a group of people to the Son, knowing that the Son could not save them all, or would fail to save them all. Because would the Father do anything with his elect people, which might result in them perishing? No. No. Because it is the eternal purpose of the Father to save all that he has chosen. It is the eternal purpose of the Son to fully save all that the Father has chosen and committed to him. And so it is the will of both the Father and the Son that of all whom the Father has chosen and given to the Son, to them the Son will give eternal life and they will never perish and they will never be taken away from him and he will raise them up on the last day. So can the Son fail to do this? No. Will the Father fail to do this? No. Now if it is not enough for you to know that the Son is committed to the security of sheep, then does it help to know that the Father is committed to the security of sheep as well? Does it help to know that all that the Father has done, including committing these sheep to his Son, is done with a view towards their eternal redemption? The Father could commit a people to his Son to save, knowing that his Son would not fail, and that he, the Father, could not commit them into better hands. What a Savior! And the thought that a sinner should have victory over the Father and the Son by snatching away and dragging to hell one of God's own people, or the thought that Satan could have victory over the Father and the Son by snatching them away and dragging to hell one of God's own people, who has been chosen and saved and sanctified and redeemed and adopted and completely atoned for? Friends, that is blasphemous beyond words. The Son will not and cannot fail to cherish and preserve the love gift that was given to him by the Father and to preserve them all. All right, that's the seventh statement. Now the eighth. None can snatch them from the Father. Now this eighth statement is much like the sixth. The sixth statement, none can snatch his sheep from him, that is from Jesus. Likewise, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And the intention of both of those statements is the same. It is to communicate security, and the imagery is the same. We can envision the sheep being held in the hand, securely in the hand of the Good Shepherd. And it is in his hand of power and omnipotence and deity. And if that is not enough, and, and it certainly is to secure our salvation, if that is not enough, the Father holds his sheep as well. The Son holds his sheep, and the Father holds his sheep, and we are doubly secure. We cannot be snatched from the Son's hand. We cannot be snatched from the Father's hand. And, and as if we need to be told... Jesus reminds us that the Father is greater than all. And that's the assurance, that's the ultimate assurance of our salvation. The Father is greater than all. There's no higher person. There's no more powerful being. There's no more powerful force. If the Father intends my security, then there is nothing that can endanger that. Nothing. Not my will, not my sin, not my weaknesses, not my failures, not my uncertainties, doubts, discouragements. There is nothing that can endanger my salvation because there is no force in heaven or on earth or any power under the earth or in hell, which could threaten to take me from him, because he is greater than I, he is greater than all. And if the Father wills my security and secures me, and he is greater than all, then he secures me even from myself. Just as there is no jumping from the hands of the Good Shepherd, so there is no jumping from the hand of the Father. For if one could jump from the hand of the Father, then that one would perish. And Jesus already promised us that none of his sheep will perish, because he gives them eternal life, and they will never perish. And notice, by the way, that this text does not say that it's possible for the sheep to jump out of the shepherd's hand. Neither does the text say that it is possible for the sheep to jump out of the Father's hand. Everything Jesus has described here precludes that as a possibility. It is excluded. It is not possible. And so to, to suppose so is to read something into this text that is not here 
and cannot be here and is the furthest thing from John's mind and certainly the furthest thing from Jesus' mind. It is to suppose ability because it would mean that the sheep could perish. And Jesus has already promised us he gives them eternal life and they will never perish. Now when Jesus says that the sheep shall never perish, the clever Arminian who believes you can lose your salvation tries to find some way around his words by which he can imagine actually perishing. Friends, that's just being unfaithful to the text. This last statement is the climax of the argument. Jesus, just as being told that no one and nothing can snatch me from the Son's hand is enough, but that is not the summit of the mountain. The summit of the mountain is the Father is greater than all, and no one, none, can snatch me from him. So I am doubly secure, because the Father and the Son have willed and worked and secured my salvation, and both of them are intent upon my security and have vouchsafed it. Now what more could be said? If Jesus wanted to assure that those who have trusted in him are forever secure without ever the possibility that they should perish, what else would he need to say? How could he possibly have described this or assured this any more thoroughly and clearly than he has just done? And yet people try to pervert this passage and rest the scriptures to derive theology that says the sheep can perish. And that is just a perversion of the truth. It is a doctrine of demons. It is a man-centered, blasphemous assault on the character and ability of the great shepherd of the sheep. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, If I had listened to the Arminian theory, I would never have been converted, for it never had any charms for me. A Savior who casts away his people, a God who leaves his children to perish, were not worthy of my worship, and a salvation which does not save outright is neither worth preaching nor listening to. End quote. I would agree with that. Because such a gospel that says that the sheep can perish is neither worth preaching nor listening to. Now, last week I said that when we finish this, we deal with some common questions or objections and which might be raised against these doctrines that we've been considering. And before we do that, I want to make one last observation. I want you to notice how Jesus argues for the security of the believer. Jesus bases his doctrine, this doctrine of the security, not on the inviolable nature of the human decision or merely the irreversibility of belief, but Jesus bases this on the sovereign decree and the purpose of the Father in the salvation of the people. Now there are some who believe in eternal security, but they would reject the doctrine of election, they would reject the doctrine of the atonement, and they would just simply believe that, you know, once you pray a prayer, or you make a profession of faith, you make a decision, boom, you're in like Flynn, you can't step back out. They would say, I don't believe God's election guarantees anything, I don't believe the death of Christ actually atones for sin of a sheep, I don't believe that grace was guaranteed or granted to me in eternity past, and that only some were given to the Son, I don't believe that God guaranteed or secured the ultimate salvation of anybody in particular, but I do believe in once saved, always saved. And they kind of view salvation as like a trap, you know, once you get them in, the trap springs, and boom, you get the decision, you get them to pray the prayer, and they're in, and, and nothing can threaten them, then it's irreversible. Or that that human decision is inviolable. It can't be violated. It can't be overturned. But I want you to notice that Jesus does not ground the security of his sheep on anything in the sheep, anything in their decision, or anything that they do. He grounds the security of his sheep back in the eternal electing purposes of the triune God in the salvation of a people that God has chosen. And friends, that is really the only firm foundation upon which we can argue for the security of the believer. What else? What else, other than the will and the purpose of God to save a people that he has chosen, what else can ground their security? You want to ground it in human will? In human faith? In human ability? That's not how Jesus taught this doctrine. He didn't say, look, salvation is is a once saved, always saved thing. Once you fall into it, you can't get out. He didn't say it's a permanent deal. Once you're in, it's irreversible no matter what. No, Jesus grounds the security of the believer in the doctrines of election and predestination, and he bases it 
our security on the relationship of the triune God and upon God's immutable purposes for his people. You cannot do better than Jesus. In fact, if you reject those doctrines of predestination and election and specific, particular atonement, then you have no basis upon which to believe in the security of the sheep because you are rejecting the only things that truly make the sheep secure. And you cut the feet right off from underneath your own theology. If you don't place your belief in eternal security on the things that Jesus has said, then you really have no basis for that belief. It's nice that you believe it. That's great. But I just want you to understand, it is completely inconsistent with the rest of your theology on salvation. Now, a common question that could be raised. What about those who walk away? Now, there are kind of a whole bunch of little questions that are tied up into this this one. Um, let's unpack this a bit. I, I know that we kind of dealt with this a little bit in uh, a couple of previous messages. Um, so you might say, Jim, I, I know someone who was certainly definitely saved, and then they walked away, they never came back to the Lord, and they died in unbelief. Now, you can't know they were saved since you can't see the heart. All you and I really have to go on is a profession of faith, which profession turned out to be short-lived. Their unbelief was evidence that they did not belong to Jesus. An individual who is not believing, that is not trusting in Christ, is not his sheep. That's verse 26. And false belief is always a possibility, and we've seen this in John. Jesus warns us about this deception of false belief in so many ways. We saw it in chapter 2, we saw it in 6, we saw it in 8, we see it in chapter 10. You and I know people who are deceived and have made a show of a faith for a time. Now it's sad, yes, it is very sad. But their going out from among us is evidence that they do not belong with us, and they were never really one of us, that is, one of us believers. First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown, that is demonstrated, that they are all not of us. Now, based on the scripture, the words of Jesus, what would we conclude about those who depart from the faith? We would have to conclude that they are false converts. For if they were true believers, they would persevere to the end, and they would be kept by God, and they would not walk away. Jesus gives them eternal life. They will never perish, and they will always remain believing. But you have to understand that the one who loves darkness, for the one who loves darkness, there is nothing more depressing and more exhausting than trying to pretend to hate darkness and love light. Because eventually the mast has to come off. They, they just cannot keep up pretenses like that. It is exhausting to try and pretend to love light and hate darkness, when in fact you love darkness and you hate light. And many people depart from Christianity because it just does not deliver on the promises that they were given. This was the lesson from John 6 with the, the multitude that came to Jesus. They believed in him. They wanted to make him king, followed him for the free food. But when the free food dried up and they were what they were expecting failed to come at their beck and call, they withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. John 6, verse 66. And the same thing happens in our own day, and we have much to thank the presentation of the modern gospel. Nothing has created more false converts than the modern gospel. Peace, happiness, lasting satisfaction, and good times. Because preachers say we should come to Jesus if we want peace, prosperity, and lasting happiness. People come to Jesus, and they outwardly embrace this false gospel. And instead, they get what Jesus promised, trials, tribulations, and persecutions. And they've given the Jesus thing a whirl, and they find out that it's not what they promised. They were promised, and unfortunately, they were promised a mirage. And they leave the faith, figuring that they had been sold a bill of goods, and sure enough, they were. But when people come to Christ, not for the wrong reasons, but for the right reasons, they find that Jesus delivers on what he promises. 
But when they come for the wrong reasons, and then they find out that Jesus does not deliver on what they were promised, who can blame them for walking away? But sinners, are, when they're given the right motivation to come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin and to escape the wrath of con, uh, come, then when trials and tribulations and persecutions come their way, they don't depart. After all, they didn't come to the they didn't come to the gospel or come to Christ for a better life or an improved golf swing or a sense of purpose or a better job or a lasting sense of fulfillment and happiness. They came for forgiveness. And that, in fact, is exactly what Jesus provides. So what about those who walk away? As hard as this is to stomach, as hard as it is to accept, we have to realize that they were not truly saved. And they need to hear and respond to the real gospel and be born again. They're not a case of people losing their salvation. They are a case of people revealing their true condition. Now, what if somebody claims to be a believer and then walks away? Does that prove that they claims to be a believer and then walks away? Does that prove that they're not his sheep and that they will never believe? No, it just proves that at the time they do not believe in Christ. But since we don't know who the elect are, it cannot prove that they will never believe. Because it's possible for someone to pretend to be a believer and then to leave Christ, demonstrating that they are not converted, that they're not a Christian, and then after some time they return and they are truly saved. I know some folks like that. We have some folks like that in our own congregation. They, they let a pretense of a faith for a period of time, and then God did a work in them and genuinely saved them. So for the one who walks away from the faith, we can be thankful that the mask has come off, then we can pray for them, confront them, appeal to them, evangelize them, so that, Lord willing, he will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so as that they might be saved. But their departure from the faith only proves that they were never believing and never truly believed, it does not prove that they never will believe. Dropping the charade of false belief may be the very thing that the Good Shepherd will use to drive them to himself for the very first time. You don't know. So here's the assurance that we do have. If they belong to Christ, they will hear his voice, and he will bring them to himself, and they will remain secure in him. Now here's another tricky thing, another tricky question. What about assurance of salvation? Maybe you're thinking, wow, I mean, how, he, how do I know if I'm saved? Is it possible for someone to pretend to be a believer and either consciously or unknowingly deceiving themselves and others? How can I know that I am a true believer? How do I know if I am his sheep? And there are two extremes in this question that we have to avoid. The first is an, an unwarranted confidence, and the second is an unresting introspection. So let's deal with each of those for just a second. We want to avoid an unwarranted confidence. Uh, an unwarranted confidence would be never giving a single thought to the condition of your soul and just simply saying, look, I prayed the prayer when I was four. I was told by my pastor that I was saved. I wrote the date down in my Bible. I was baptized. Bam, no questions. Well, hold on a second. Time out. A little self-examination from time to time is not a bad idea. So don't just plow ahead without giving any thought to the genuineness of your faith and the genuineness of your regeneration. But on the other extreme is an unresting introspection. And this is the person who is constantly in angst over whether they're saved or not. Did I repent enough? Do I believe enough? Am I trusting enough? What What if I'm deceived? How do I know for sure? Ah, oh, I sinned today. What does that mean? Does it mean I'm deceiving myself? Does it mean I'm no longer a Christian? If I sinned, sin, does it mean that I'm not a Christian at all? What if I don't feel bad enough about my sin? Should I feel worse? What if my lack of sorrow for this particular sin indicates that I'm not really a believer? Uh, maybe I should go back and get saved all over again. Now, you see the problem with both of those approaches? On the one hand, you're not looking at yourself enough to give a right assessment. But on the other hand, you're looking at yourself too much and not enough at Christ. So no introspection will lead you to deception. And too much introspection will lead you to despair. And there is a better way. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's the better way. 
You, you apply the gospel to this question. You step back and you take a look at God's commandments and you say, I've broken them. I'm still a sinner. Okay, I recognize that. What does the gospel tell me? The gospel tells me that if I repent of my sin and I trust in what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf, if I will believe and place my faith in him for eternal life, forgive my sin and give me his righteousness. It's a free gift. Now, does that mean I will never sin? No. But when I do, I get right back up and I wage war against it. It means that when I sin, I go right back to the basics of the gospel and remember that I'm not accepted by God on the basis of what I have done or will do, but I am accepted by God on the merits of another whose righteousness prevails for me. And so now I have to ask myself, why did I come to Christ? Why do I need him? What am I trusting him? Who paid the price for my sin, me or Jesus? Have I trusted in him, believed upon his word, and turned from sin? Has God given me a new heart with new desires and a love for righteousness? Do I love sin more than the Savior? And if I can identify the fruit of the Spirit in my life and mark that I am growing in these traits and progressing in holiness, that God is changing me, then I know I am his. And as a general rule, if you're worried about your salvation, it's a good sign. In all likelihood, it is a sign that you are saved. Those who are unregenerate, as a rule, do not worry about their sin. They don't battle it. They aren't concerned about it. So a lack of assurance is answered by coming back to the gospel. What and whom have I believed and why? Now remember, the point of these verses is so that we might rest assured and secure in him. These words are not given to cause us to doubt. They are actually given to put away doubt. Have you believed in him? Has he saved you from your sin? Yes? Then rest. You're secure. Your sin, Satan, yourself, cannot snatch you from him. So stop looking to yourself so much and look to Christ. Now that answers a couple of questions and now for an objection. And this is probably the most common one. This will be our last, our last one. Some people would say this doctrine encourages sin. They say oh, people are told that they're secure, they'll feel the freedom to sin with impunity, and so this just encourages licentious living. Actually, no, it does not. It is perversion of this truth that would encourage sin. But the doctrine of the security of the sheep does not encourage sin. The perversion of this truth says that if you pray a prayer and you walk an aisle and you check a box, you're you're good to go. You, you've been baptized, you, you've come to church, you, you professed, you prayed the prayer, you became a Christian. Nothing you can ever do should ever cause you to doubt this. You just walk away from here. You're secure. you got your fire insurance. But that's not this doctrine. See, these those things don't make you a Christian. And that's the point. And that's not what I've been saying. The perversion of this doctrine gives false assurance to goats. The truth gives true assurance to sheep. Now, maybe you've been listening to this and you've been thinking, well, this means I can sin as I please and I'm safe. Hold on, time out. The sheep don't think like that. Goats think like that. But the true believer does not. So if you actually think like that, you are anything but secure. Because the one who truly belongs to Christ and has come to know grace and appreciates so deeply the profound sacrifice of the Savior does not look for an opportunity to take advantage of grace or to sin against grace and to sin against the Savior. A true believer is overwhelmed by grace and does not want to turn the grace of God into licentiousness. A true believer is so thankful to their Savior and for their security of salvation that they desire to live a holy life in response to it. They don't want to sin because they hate sin. They love light, not darkness. They were set free from darkness. And they don't long for slavery to sin again. So in fact, not only does this doctrine not encourage more sin, I believe it has just the opposite effect. Understanding the security of the sheep encourages the mortification of sin. 
It is actually a motivation to sin less. Let me explain. If I believed it were possible for me to spend my whole life denying myself, pursuing holiness and sanctification, killing sin, practicing righteousness, and then at the 11th hour that I could fall into some snare of the devil, some sin, fall prey to some weakness or deception of my flesh, and die and perish in hell's flames, then tell me this, what motivation is there for me to live such a life? Why would I strive and labor against sin? Why would I kill sin in my life if there was a good chance of me perishing as not? See, but I believe the opposite. In my fight against sin and my battle with the flesh, I cannot fail. I cannot. I will be victorious. I will receive the prize. I cannot perish and succumb to sin. Finally, after a lifetime of struggle, it cannot ultimately be victorious over me and cast me into eternal perdition. I will win. It cannot be otherwise. So I fight and I mortify sin. I attack sin. I put it to death. I deny the flesh. I yield my members of instruments of righteousness instead of sin. I put to death the desires of the flesh and make no provision for them because I know that in my fight I will win. This fight cannot be in vain because I am secure. So I can mortify sin and fight with it with the assurance that such a fight can never be in vain and can never be for naught. I need never fear that I might fight sin my whole life and yet perish under its judgment. That cannot be. So this doctrine of the security of the sheep actually encourages the mortification and killing of sin. It discourages sin rather than encourages sin. Now friends, the doctrine that says you can lose your salvation, it's a lie. It is the, it is the polar opposite of what Jesus taught in this passage. Those who are his are safe and secure beyond all harm. So if you belong to Christ, you are secure. If you are his, it can never be otherwise. He will not lose you. He cannot fail you. You can rest in his righteousness and his eternal purposes for you. Do not fret. Don't panic. You can unflinchingly face death with the utter, utter assurance that he will lose none of his sheep. And we can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep which I have committed unto him against that day. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.